0: Visit ViralGrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.
1: Welcome to today's episode of Brave
2: Commerce. I'm Sarah Hopstetter, president of Profitero. And I'm Rachel Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. And this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands. Sarah, have you ever considered writing a book? So many times.
1: It's a lot of freaking work though, but so many people tell me that I have fascinating stories and that I should write a book. And I just don't know if that's an insult or not.
2: I have actually always thought you could have already been a published author. So I hope that's in your future.
1: (laughs) Retirement, baby.
2: Well, it's amazing the cachet that being a published author still has. I've never given up hardcover books, but how I discover books has evolved. There's so many times that I find myself screenshotting Instagram posts to keep track of what folks are reading in my community.
1: Oh, absolutely. There's so many recommendation engines in general for content. Books is uh, probably the last bastion of it, but when it's good, it's really good. And if you think about it... That's just modern-day word-of-mouth marketing, things like Instagram.
2: I, I, I still read, I know it's going to sound very old school, but I still read the New York Times book review. It is an amazing source, and another thing that has incredible cachet. The pandemic has certainly changed a lot of things and a lot of categories, and one of them has been a newfound energy in the book business. So let's bring someone onto the show who knows a lot about the book business, Sunu Dillion, the chief marketing officer of Penguin Random House thank you for joining us.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
2: One of the reasons why I think I immediately gravitated towards you, you were a new friend during the pandemic, is that you're always seeking outside inspiration. And I love that because the book category is going through this major quote-unquote renaissance right now. I read a Publisher Weekly article that said in 2020, book sales were up 6% compared to 2019. So I'm curious, like, what's your take on this new growth within the industry?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. What we've seen of the growth is that it's pretty much due to our back catalog. So it's what we call internally our backlist. And backlist is something that has always been a publisher's bread and butter, because typically there are relatively few marketing costs associated with it. In a business school framework, it's something that you would consider your cash cows, Right. But the increased popularity of online shopping was a major reason in this growth of Backlist since it's easier to find books via search than it is to discover new books online. The discovery process for books was something that would happen in a store that you would go into and you would stumble upon something that you didn't know that you wanted, right? But in the online world, it's really built for finding the exact thing that you want. So it's great that books that were published years ago are continuing to find new audiences. We like to say if the book is new to the reader, it's new. So, And you know, to give you a sense of that shift in numbers, in 2010, Backlist accounted for approximately half of all unit sales across the industry. And then in 2020, it grew to two thirds of the unit sales which is a pretty big jump. But, you know, people turn to books for comfort. They turn to books to understand. They turn to books to help them solve a problem. And I think last year in particular, we saw really key moments when people turned to books. It was the rush to find workbooks at the beginning of the stay-at-home orders, I know as a, as a mom, when parents were really trying to keep their kids busy. Definitely people got into hobbies, clearly, in the springtime, because we saw a rise in books on baking, gardening, bird watching, You know, dog training, And then this summer with the um, Black Lives Matter movement, we saw an increase in books centered on race and being anti-racist.
1: Good for that. (laughs) On top of everything else that you just said, because we need a little more waking up around here. Absolutely. That's fabulous. I always look at books as almost like the OG of e-commerce, right? Like of all the things that people started buying online, books was where it started. And so I think it's kind of interesting even to hear you talk about, the backlist coming forward, it really is the original point of discovery. So where and how does e-commerce play a role relative to, like you said, discovering a book while walking through, like I'm having these romantic visions of like walking through the strand and just finding things like, how does book discovery now happen in the most typical ways, if you will, it's
3: the nugget that we continue to try to crack, right? Even the examples that I shared, you can imagine anyone saying, how to train my dog, I will find the book. But how do you actually talk about, I need to escape into a story that's going to make me not doom scroll on my Instagram, right? It's just a lot harder. But you know, we have traditional ways that we would, promote books historically. And the biggest asset that we have is an author. Publicity is a key component of trying to help drive discovery and cut through all of the noise and And authors who bring a platform to that help enable that.
1: <laughs> I've got a husband who's an English teacher and a published author. I've got a daughter who has no room for her clothes because she has so many books in her room. I love it. You're preaching to the converted in the Hofstetter household, that's for sure. I love it.
2: You know, as you talk, I'm thinking about book TikTok. I don't unfortunately get book TikTok brought to me because I definitely personally need to read more. But when you think about discovery and why discovery has been broken within the book business, what I'm hearing for you is that it was, it was all about search because it was really about pull as opposed to push. So I'm wondering if a medium like TikTok is, is an area that you guys are thinking about at Penguin Random House to push more discovery onto people.
3: Absolutely. We use TikTok as a platform, but we have seen books, again, going back to backlist and going back to books that are in our back catalog, that are older, that pop up just randomly out of the blue, seemingly for a reason we don't really understand. We have many cases where there's a book called Burn After Writing. This is a book that we saw it bubbling up on TikTok. Because people were burning things and then showing the cover of, of the book. That's not something that we could have really manufactured. We could have tried to, right? But it's also like the organic is, you know, what we see that's really taking off. There's another book. It's a it's a novel. It's what we would call literary fiction that is also taking off on TikTok because people are holding up the cover and it's a bit devastating of a read. So people are holding up the cover and crying, <laughs> with tears. And this is another reason that it's taken off. So absolutely, I I think that we try to use all these ways. But I I think most brands will tell you that the quick pace, things move so fast, a term I heard is infobesity.
2: (laughs) I've never heard that.
3: Yeah, you know, there's just so much, right? It's so much harder to try to break through. Even though there are all of these other platforms that we could try to use to help aid discovery, so many other brands are also using these platforms. So it's just a lot harder to break through than it used to be when it was really about where was the table placed in the store mm. so that the consumer could see it when they walked right in at the front.
1: Wow. I'm curious, actually, now that we're talking about the next set of discovery, not just necessarily going to Google and and looking up like, how do I train my dog, but actually going to go find the book. Did you guys see a change with uh, Queen's Gambit? Did people start, did you get like things coming up from the backlist on like
3: introduction to chess? Like, is
1: there a a pop culture correlative?
3: Absolutely. You see it whenever something is kind of trending out in in the world or it's out in the zeitgeist. Bridgerton, you see a rise in the Regency romance. People are searching for that. Queen's Gambit, absolutely saw a rise in people wanting to learn how to play chess. Yes, absolutely. It's something that's also interesting around about our industry and about how publishing has has evolved a bit is that that trend-driven or data-driven publishers are really the ones that are making a, a mark today. So, you know, we have access to understand people who are searching for chess books, but what's really interesting about kind of people who are, are what you'd say, disrupting our industry is then people are are making books around what people are, are searching for.
1: Yeah, that's been a fascinating cottage industry of just trying to understand what people are searching for and then just creating the, it's like almost like the Zara of Amazon or books, but how do you think about budgeting for those zeitgeist moments. Like you would think there probably was some sort of, not necessarily a formula, but kind of tried and true way to do book marketing when the percentage of sales were coming not from the backlist. But now that you're kind of doing this whole backlist weight tied to the zeitgeist, does that change the way you think about like having a reserve fund to promote things or it's just more of like... An SEO, social optimization play. I also think it's
3: a mindset shift too, right? Because if the majority of our work was around launching a book, we would say that our job is take the author's hand, guide them through the publishing process, help launch the book out into the world. And then the next season of authors, we're doing the same thing. When books start popping, we have to work on the books that are working. It's not just about launching the books out in into the world and making sure that we prioritize those books with time, with the right resourcing. Not even from a time perspective, but financial perspective is is absolutely key, so that we can keep it working.
2: We hope you're enjoying our interview with Sanu Dillion. More to come, and we're looking forward to hearing about the bravest thing that she's ever done. But first, we want to thank you for continuing to support our podcast, Brave Commerce. Absolutely
1: please make sure to subscribe on Apple, follow us on Spotify. We would love for you to just leave us a rating. The more ratings and comments, the more amazing guests and
2: events we can roll out. We have some major guests coming onto the show, so please subscribe and keep this podcast climbing the charts. A lot of the things you touched upon are very familiar to Sarah and I because we spent a lot of time working within CPG. Mm -hmm. So everything that you're talking about in terms of search and discovery And having these backlist namesake hero brands, what we don't hear about a lot, at least from my perspective in the book industry, is who are the up and comings? Who are sort of challenging the traditional publisher models that we should be looking out for? I guess my question is, in beauty, I would say, who's the glossier of book publishing?
3: One thing to understand about our our industry is that it is very dynamic because the barriers to entry are low. Unlike perhaps other industries, CPG especially, because the barriers to entry are so low, new publishers are being founded every minute. And the industry is highly fragmented and and also unconcentrated. So we've always had a lot of niche publishers. Self-publishing has always been a very healthy segment of the industry. I think what's new about this moment is is what I touched on a little bit earlier. What we've seen in the past five years or so is a rise in this quick trend-driven publishing. So companies are really... Investing in understanding what people on social, Google, or Amazon are looking for, which suggests content opportunities, right? And then they're quickly creating books. And then, whether it's ebook, audiobook, print books, you're able to distribute at scale. I think probably the best example is a company called Callisto Media. They've been doing it the longest and, and they've made real advances in the industry.
1: Picking up on something you just said about ebooks and audiobooks, audiobooks was getting so much play over the past few years, just given people were listening to books on commutes and rise of podcasting and why Rachel and I are even doing this. With the pandemic, have you seen more of a surge in audiobooks
3: or are people going back old school? It's so interesting the way you can look at trends that happen when the pandemic first happened, we saw a dip in audio books because people were using it on their commute, but then it leveled back. Why? Because people were taking walks or they're walking their dog, like people being stuck in their home office. They needed like time and space to get out of their home office. And they were using that time to listen to audiobooks. So it's interesting that they shifted one behavior to the next, but it's something that we Understand about reading in general, which it is a highly disruptible habit, meaning one change in your life situation, it's very easy to not read as much. So if you change your commute, change your job, have a baby, get married, it can really shift your reading patterns. What we had with the audiobooks, luckily, was that there was a replacement habit that got built from the lack of commute, which was being able to take walks so that you could get outside of your home office, which then, you know, we saw a leveling off of the audiobook sales.
2: On the theme of change of behaviors, mm-hmm. I know that traditionally, Penham Random House is really focused on relationships with big retailers like a Barnes and Noble or an Amazon with the rise of D2C as a theme in commerce, yeah. how are you guys thinking about direct-to-consumer versus your major retailer relationships?
3: It's a, a really great question, especially because you know, last year we saw phenomenal growth on our channels, like a thousand percent, but you have to put it in context <laughs> across the retail landscape. So physical retail and, and e-retail, we serve 20,000 accounts. So almost all of our sales are still captured through our retail partners. I think that there is a a big benefit, of course, to having a direct relationship with our readers, one of them being an opportunity to learn about their shopping and reading preferences. That helps us serve them better. So when they're coming to visit us, it's more of a personalized experience. But it can also certainly help inform our retail partner strategy. So you can start to think about how we can share this with our retail partners so that they can understand the Penguin Random House title mix that they order. And since we know that readers don't just read in narrow, they don't just read one author, they don't read one imprint, Sarah, you you know this, they don't read within like one category, they read across section of books. And being able to understand how one reader picks up one book and then goes and buys another and then reads the next, I think is very valuable information for our retail partners to have. But essentially our goal at the end of the day is to really maximize our sales through whatever channel the consumer prefers, and then just help our retail partners do that in the best possible way for them.
1: I've spent so much of my career in food marketing That was one of those things where we had such great line of sight. If you liked one certain type of food, there was a very good chance you were going to buy a different kind of food and had nothing to do with that first kind of food. But when you see those parallels, there's nothing you could do about it. And I'm thinking, well, I went from reading A Promised Land by Barack Obama to the Colin Jost autobiography. Like, I mean, I guess they're both autobiographical and nonfiction, theoretically, but yeah. I don't know necessarily that it fits the same
3: profile. So fair enough. Yeah. But would you say that maybe it was more centered around the experience you were looking for?
1: You know what? I don't know. Like I, I was telling Rachel, I'm like so old school. I-, I still read hardcover books and I get my recommendations from the New York Times book review. So I'm um, just super duper old school. So if I see something and I'm like, that looks interesting, I'll just get it. And it doesn't matter what kind of mood I'm in. I become the mood of the book. This isn't about me. (laughs) This isn't a therapy (laughs) session. (laughs) Um, A lot of our listeners, or maybe even Rachel or I would be aspiring authors at some point. As you see things from a very different vantage point, what tips or tricks do you have for aspiring authors to break through?
3: I give this advice all the time, but the most important place to start is to find an agent because they're your advocates and and agents have spent years creating relationships with editors and with publishers. They really understand the person who's going to take you by the hand and guide you through the entire publishing process. From acquisition, the editing process, the sales and marketing planning process, launch, promotion, you know, there's a lot of other steps in there too. So that entire process can be very daunting, no matter how successful you are. So finding the right person, the agent to help you navigate that is key. That's one. I think another key consideration is to get your pitch right. <laughs> so who are you writing the book for? If you're writing it for everyone, it's for no one. Having a very clear view of your, your audience first. And then of course, branching out from there and thinking about the opportunity audience is key.
2: Spoken like a true marketer. You always say, what's the pitch? Might've been the most valuable tip given on this show so far. <laughs> Coming to the end, sadly, and we get to ask you our favorite question which is what is the bravest thing that you've ever done?
3: I love this question. My example is professional and personal, and it's a bit of a three-in-one story, but the reason why it represents bravery is because it's connected by a similar belief system. So I was a, a business major in undergrad, and I always wanted to get my MBA shortly after graduating. But of course, life flew by and my few years of working turned into a few decades of working. But getting my MBA was always at the back of my mind. But I'd also long wanted to be a mom and and had planned to adopt. And that was always at the back of my mind. But in 2010, I intentionally started a plan to apply to business school, but ended up putting it on hold because I had an opportunity to adopt. It literally like A great opportunity fell into my lap. So I did that at the end of 2010. And I became a solo mom to an infant son. Two years go by, I finally feel ready and rested enough. And I commit myself to applying to business school. And I I enter the NYU executive MBA program in 2013. A year later, one year into the program, my son's birth mother called me, told me she was pregnant again. And asked if we could make an adoption plan. On one hand, it felt like a no brainer to me. But on the other, it was like the worst timing because I'm a solo mom. I have a full time job. I'm in a full time MBA program. And she was doing four weeks. Wow. <laughs> so I had no time to prep. But I said, yes. And then I brought my daughter home a month later and I completed my degree at the end of 2014. So that's why I said it's kind of three stories in one, but I see them all related because I feel like they're connected by a few commonalities. One, I was always very clear about what I wanted. You know, I wanted to be a mom. I wanted to go back to school. But the biggest thing was I just got out of my own way. And that was so hard. Because there were so many times I questioned the process and I questioned the how, like, how am I going to do all of this? What is it going to look like? But I had to stay steady and not get hung up on all of these complicating factors. And when I would get anxious, I would say to myself, take the next right step and let it unfold. And I look back now and I'm so glad I kind of stood in my intention and got out of my own way because getting my MBA was great for my career. And I'm a mom to two awesome kids. But for me, kind of being brave is, is having that clarity, stating your intention, and then trusting the process, taking the next right step and, and getting out of your own way.
1: Whoa, <laughs> you go girl. <laughs> I don't don't know if it's brave or crazy, but (laughs) yeah, God bless. I think the fact that you were not only brave, but you kept your North star, no matter what, I think is just a a fantastic sign of commitment and clearly demonstrates that you've got your head on straight. I
3: like saying it as the North star, I, I think. And I love that, that point of, of taking the next right step, which means you may not always know what is at the end of the path. But if you just commit to moving forward, there's a lot of traction that you can get from that.
2: So much wisdom, what you just shared. And, and thank you for sharing that. It's my favorite part of the show is to get to know people in this way that you never would expect. And I'm sure your kids are proud of you if you're looking at what the future of the book business looks like, you got to follow all the work that's happening at Penguin Random House. A lot is coming down the pipeline. You represent some amazing authors and we really appreciate your time today.
3: Thank you so much for having me. This was so great. I'm blown away by you. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for listening.
2: Please leave us a rating and review on Apple
1: Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to share this link with a friend.